0: Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me this week. We are back with Capote's Coterie. And in this week of Drop Everything Now twists, we opened this season with Truman Capote as a small child in Monroeville, Alabama. I want to get back to that kid. We can achieve this by bringing out a few other essential swans over the coming episodes. So excited to be here! So excited you're here! But before we begin this quest on done and done, I do have a spyglass here with enormous thanks to give to our most recent supporters at patreoncom Done and Done, subscribing for early and ad-free episodes. Done drops and Not Done Yet episodes too. Huge love and thanks and appreciation to Lisa, Jenna F, Sabrina, Jim B, Kenda H, Sarah A, Terry D, and Heather and Whitney too. So thankful to all of you for showing a little support to our investigation in return for your extra goodies. Your patronage is really, really appreciated. As are you, Thank you again for joining me as we dip into these next few episodes in which we're going to reconnect into Truman Capote through his swans, all the kinds. And this particular excerpt, I feel really brings us back to Truman Capote to reset the stage a little bit this week. This next bit is from a piece by Anthony Ramirez, published in the New York Times, September 30th, 2005. The piece is titled, Recalling Capote and the New York that Let Him Glitter. Long before the drinking, the parties, the gossip, and the fall, in a city that no longer exists, a boy from the South with the outlandish name of Truman Struckfus Persons became the outlandish writer Truman Capote, author of In Cold Blood, of Breakfast at Tiffany's, and of his own demise in cafe society, answered prayers. Perhaps he could have flourished only in the New York that was a city of literary ambition, the one after World War II, as his biographer Gerald Clark contends. Perhaps he could have flourished in any New York, especially today's that prizes talent and a wink, as his friend Gay Talese, the author, contends. But what is clear is that he could not have become Truman Capote in any place but New York, the city both of the Plaza Hotel, where he held the party of the century, and of Brooklyn Heights, where he lived and wrote in a Spartan apartment. Capote embodied a New York story of style, triumph, and disillusion. I had to be successful, Capote said in 1978, and I had to be successful early. Mr. Talese said Capote had a heightened sense of place and timing. He knew where the golden light was in the towering city, Mr. Talese said in a telephone interview. The novelist was born in New Orleans on September the thirtieth, nineteen twenty-four. The son of Archulus Persons, a member of an old Alabama family, and of the former Lily May Falk, his middle name of Struckfuss came from a steamship line where his father worked. Truman Nine came to Manhattan in nineteen thirty-three when his mother was remarried to a Spanish-born Wall Street broker named Joseph Capote, who later adopted him and named him Truman Garcia Capote. The family lived for a long time in Greenwich, Connecticut, where Capote went to high school, but he and a female friend, while still under age, used to take the train to Manhattan, where they would charm their way into nightclubs like the old stork club, at 3 East 53rd Street. That friend, Phoebe Pierce, was one of the models for Holly Lightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Phoebe Pierce, or Phoebe Pierce Vreeland, one of a cast of many. Goodness, everybody wants to be Holly Lightly, but Phoebe Pierce was a real friend to Truman in his early days. Phoebe Pierce Vreeland is an essential swan, Phoebe Pierce Vreeland's grandmother is Diana Vreeland, a legendary force in the world of fashion. This episode really goes places. This is me trying to tie it all together for you in the most satisfying of ways, taking us back to a very small, young Truman Capote. Let's investigate. Pierce Freeland, a model for Holly Golightly, more than certainly, and wowza, there's a lot of story in this one, friends. Phoebe Pierce Freeland will connect so many things together for us within Truman Capote's early life. Phoebe Pierce Freeland accomplished as a writer all on her own. Phoebe also brings us a very astute and acute recollection of Truman Capote as well as his mother, Lily May. Remember, Lily May turns into Nina when she gets to New York City. Phoebe also has a lot to say about Truman Capote's stepfather, Joe Capote. If there is a swan in Truman's life to replace Harper Lee when he was uprooted out of Alabama at the age of nine, it is Phoebe Pierce Vreeland. Helpfully, Phoebe Pierce does have a grandmother, You might have heard of Diana Vreeland, renowned editor-in-chief of Vogue, fashion editor of Harper's Bazaar. Diana Vreeland was a dominant force in the fashion industry of the mid-20th century. Diana Vreeland connects into so many things, but this whole story really does begin with Phoebe Pierce Vreeland and her time with Truman Capote, not only in Greenwich, Connecticut, but New York City, and her recollections of Truman, Lily May, and Joe Capote as well. Taking many of these recollections from Phoebe Pierce and Diana Vreeland, as well as a few others for this episode, from George Plimpton's Truman Capote, in which various friends, enemies, acquaintances, and detractors recall his turbulent career. If you are into everything that I am throwing down this season and perhaps looking for a wonderful book, to throw into your waterside bag for summertime, George Plimpton's Truman Capote, I think, is an excellent one. Let's go ahead and set the stage here to get Truman into New York before we hear from Phoebe about what perhaps he may have been going through, little nine-year-old uprooted from Alabama, Truman Capote. This is from Andreas Brown. When Lily May or Nina, as everyone in New York knew her, divorced arch persons and came to New York to start a new glamorous life, she found herself Joe Capote, who was a successful Cuban businessman. He adored her and immediately provided her with the lifestyle for which she was impatiently waiting. A beautiful apartment, nice clothes, everything else. That's the impression you get from everything that is available. She was very ambitious about being accepted into society. Very ambitious. She wanted to be a member of Cafe Society, as it was called in those days, and she pursued it with determination. She entertained, spent money, lived well. Truman, when he lands in New York, will attend school in New York before the family moves out to Greenwich, Connecticut. I do have two observations here about Truman's time before Phoebe comes into it. This is from John Knowles, the writer, about Truman goodness in those early days. Because certainly Truman Capote is not going to be honest. I really do feel like we have to go to people who knew him in those early days. Again, from John Knowles. Truman often talked about himself, oh my God, yes, endlessly. Sometimes you wondered whether he was doing it with some ulterior motive to get you, to set up something inside you, or whether he was really telling the truth. The first time I became involved with his famous technique, which he worked to a turn on me, was just after I first met him. Truman began telling me his life story, this terrible, tragic story. The central tragedy, as he saw it, in his life is a scene. Truman is two years old. He wakes up in an utterly strange room, empty. He yells, but he's locked in there. He's petrified, doesn't know where he is, which is in some dumpy hotel in the deep south. His parents have gone out to get drunk and dance, and they have locked this tiny little boy in this room. That was his image of terror, And I think it was his way of symbolizing the insecurity of his youth, this image of that kind of abandonment. He started with that harrowing story. Then he'd go on to tell us about his going to military school. They were going to make a man out of Truman. So he went to a series of military schools. Can you picture that? Seeing Truman in a military uniform? Obviously it wasn't going to work out let's talk about the schoolmaster clarence bruner smith of trinity and what he has to say about young truman as soon as young truman arrived his mother enrolled him in trinity when i came to trinity in 1927 the tuition in the high school was $300 this year it's 16,500 for the upper school 15,000 for the kindergarten In Truman's day, there were around 350 to 400 students through grade 12. A day started with chapel. Every morning, Truman would have taken algebra and also Latin because we start Latin in the sixth grade. He did dreadfully. His grades in math were incredible, but he was never in danger of being sent to another school. We had some very brilliant kids and some very dull ones, but we coped with it. Truman remained a child, I think, all his life. Certainly, he was a very explosive kid. I think it was in the fourth grade that he got down on the floor on his back in the headmaster's outer office and pounded his feet up in the air the way a young child might. Again, Truman would never tell these stories on himself. So let's go ahead. I have one more recollection. This is from Crawford Hart, who was a classmate of Truman's. Want to get Truman to Greenwich, Connecticut. Since classes at Trinity were small, his presence was felt, probably because of his ability to relate tales of his youth in the South, many of which were the basis for future work. Truman excelled in floor exercises in the gymnasium, And had gymnastics been as popular then as it is today, he truly could have been a candidate for possible Olympic consideration. I can remember him doing cartwheels. It reminded me of a pinwheel going at full speed. He had little use for team sports, preferring instead to perfect his tumbling, skating, dancing, and riding. I add riding here because I think he took delight in getting his articles compositions to be more exact, printed in the Trinity school paper, while the rest of us struggled to catch up with him. Truman and I both transferred to Greenwich High School, Greenwich, Connecticut, after our freshman year at Trinity. Truman's family had purchased a home in the Millbrook section of town. So we've set the stage a little bit for boy Truman, always writing, great at gymnastics, always still very much a child Truman's family Lily May Joe Capote and Truman will move to Greenwich Connecticut for Truman to attend Greenwich High School this is where Phoebe Pierce really comes into play with her amazing observations about her young friend Truman from Phoebe Pierce Vreeland I met him when I was about 12 and he was a year or so older at a party given by some people called Jaeger who lived in Millbrook, which is a section in Greenwich, an attractive place, wonderful houses, and you drive through pillars and the driveways wind round and it's heavily wooded. That's where Truman's parents had moved. Everybody knew everybody there. The Jaegers were a marvelous family, very atypical. The mother was a German village belle and the father a fabulous guy, named Hans Otto Jaeger, a brilliant chemical engineer. The only human being I've ever seen who really had dueling scars on his face. They were giving a Christmas party, and that's when I met Truman. He picked me out and started to tell me a story, a riddle, like the lady and the tiger, but more obtruse. And I knew the answer. From that moment on, we spent years in each other's pockets. We called each other on the telephone until our parents said, We'll rip it out if you don't stop it. We went everywhere together. One of the pleasures about Truman was swimming. We used to spend our whole summer in this swimming lake, the color of strong tea. On the upper and lower lake, we'd go skating in the winter. Truman was a marvelous ice skater, really marvelous, a wonderful dancer. So Truman and Phoebe Pierce Freeland know each other from an early age, but then Phoebe, holy cats, really gets into some other interesting stories here as they both head into their teenage years from Phoebe. Truman asked me to marry him maybe when we were both about 15 or 16, We figured, one of the real practical plans of youth, that since we got along, why shouldn't we get married? We'll be buddies forever. It seemed right at the time. I thought it was a perfectly swell idea. But I got involved. Well, I went to the dance with somebody else, and that's when he got very cross and stamped on my picture. But he got over it. We went to the movies. We were thrown out of the Pickwick Theater. It was one of those grandiose old theaters, the only theater in town, Moorish, a huge place, and the clouds would drift across the sky above the screen. If you wanted to go to a movie of recent vintage, you went to Stamford, which you know was a real place. You never knew what was going to drift into the Pickwick. Truman and I would go on weekends and they hated us. They hated us. Occasionally, We would fortify ourselves with some apricot brandy, oh God, but usually not. As we sat there, we would rewrite the movies at the top of our voices, screaming with laughter. She should have said, he should have said. Well, he's hopeless anyway, but if he had only said. It was awful, I mean, from the point of view of the pickwick. Ouch! We were thrown out of the pickwick more often than the dust, dear, dear golden afternoons in the pickwick theater one of the people who came to call on the capotes in greenwich was a wonderful man who was french the count of something and he had one of the great automobiles of the world with the pipes coming out of the hood black with red leather he gave and me a ride in it drive it by the pickwick we said right by the pickwick and we'd wave at them as we went by In those Greenwich years, we talked all the time. We read The New Yorker, in those days a great icon. We listened to jazz. We loved jazz. We went to used record stores and jazz bars. We went into New York together a lot, to the Stork Club and El Morocco. We saved up our money and went there. I don't know why they let us in, but they did. We were such a curious couple. Truman and I used to take those old trains back, the midnight train, the milk train. I have slept on that milk train. Finding Truman was something marvelous for me because like most adolescents who care terribly about writing and do not care very much about the kind of world that's around them, you begin to think that you're insane. Am I sane? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? I cannot emphasize enough That from the moment I met Truman, there was only one thing he knew he was going to be, and that was a writer. That's what he cared about. That's all he cared about at Greenwich High. What did algebra have to do with anything? That's when Ms. Catherine Wood came around. She was a wonderful woman, the quintessential teacher. If you put her in a room with a hundred women and you said, who's the teacher? People would pick her tall and radiant, benign but not a fool by any means. She took him in hand and schooled him thoroughly in grammar and the fundamentals, the structure of poetry, and she taught him and also interceded with the other teachers so he could walk around things like algebra. Always from the time I knew him, When he was 12 or 13, he was fascinated by society. When he was in Greenwich, he knew people who were terribly boring, but he was interested in their houses and the way they lived. He was always fascinated by the intricacies of that society. People who loved him and knew him said, For God's sake, how can you stand those people? We'd make fun of him in a nice way, How can you hang out with those idiots? But that was his thing. Interjecting here just for a moment, remember Dominic Dunn and Truman Capote born contemporaries. They're within a year of each other. Dominic Dunn is living with his family in Connecticut, Hartford, Connecticut, around this time. They've got very similar stories. And I think that little bit about Being fascinated by society, something the two, our man Nick and Truman Capote, share in common. Okay, so we've spent now a little bit of time with Truman. In Trinity, he's encountered Ms. Catherine Wood. This teacher is going to be hugely influential on his early career, understanding the basics and really solidifying for Truman that, yes, in fact, you can be a writer. I want to take Phoebe Pierce and her recollections now focusing in on Truman's family life. Phoebe Pierce continues, So I spent a lot of time at his house. I knew his parents, Nina and Joe, quite well. I knew her until she died. She and Truman were a strange pair. In the first place, which no one has ever said, they looked so much alike. You may say, but they're mother and child. Why shouldn't they? But I mean uncannily. The same coloring, the same high forehead, the same color eyes set in the face, the same mouth, the same body structure. Rather slim upper body, heavy hips and heavy legs. Nina was the first Southern woman I had ever met. Now you talk Southern. She was a real Southern child. Amazed at everything. Amazed at shafts, Amazed. That's saying something. She was a darling, charming, original person, but we just gazed at one another across this gulf. She scared me because she was not like a mother. Now, Greenwich was by no means a boring place as suburbs go. There were a lot of interesting, eccentric, amusing people, but she was quite outside my experience. She was also, this shows you how times change, The only divorced mother that I knew. So this made her sort of exotic. Nina was a belle. She was. She was extremely attractive. Very attractive sexually. She could be charming, but you never felt she meant it. I hope I have not given you the impression that Nina was some hotsy-totsy person flinging herself around the furniture. She was beautifully dressed. She had a great feeling for style, her hair, and everything. I always remember her jewelry. She loved amethysts and always wore them, and Joe gave them to her for her birthday. A very beautifully mannered woman. I was only about 11 when I met her. She was the only mother I met who was not a mother kind of mother at all. She was lovely to Truman at one point and terrible the next, So he was constantly ricocheting. She'd insult him in front of people. You're going to wind up in the gutter, and all this stuff. You never knew what she was going to do next, and that's not any fun to live with. Joe was absolutely adorable, much nicer to Truman. Now, as for Joe, at the time, Joe was a darling guy, wonderful fun. If she was the first divorcee mother I met, he was the first Cuban. He had a wonderful accent, a Cuban accent, which is nothing like Puerto Rican or Spanish. He was funny, humorous. He taught me how to rumba. But Nina was his life, and he didn't know really how to handle the whole thing. Of course, he couldn't handle his financial life. He wound up in Sing Sing for embezzlement, something like that. I'll never forget that. I mean, Sing Sing? That's where Jimmy Cagney goes to jail. Not the nice guy who taught you how to do the rumba. Joe and Nina and Truman are going to head back to New York City from Greenwich, Connecticut. I do have Phoebe Pierce Vreeland talking about this bit, explaining that, quote, things went from bad to worse with Joe and Nina. It was especially difficult for Nina For women in the suburbs those days, unless you were truly suburban, that is to say you liked squash, golf, gardening, good causes, antique collecting, something of that sort, it was a horror show. There was nothing to do. No men around all day, people reaching for the bottle or pills, or for their tennis instructor. Truman was very proud, and he never complained, but he saw that it was just getting worse and worse. He was the one who really got them to move back to New York. He packed up the stuff. I remember him helping. He was going to New York, and that's when they moved to 1060 Park. Doesn't that set the scene about our boy wonder writer at an early age, from nine to teenage years? I want to move our story a little bit further. What happens to Truman Capote and Phoebe Pierce Vreeland. In 1944, Truman is going to find some independence from mama Lily May. He is going to work on his writing and begin to take day jobs, including one for the New Yorker. He's going to move out on his own. And those stories are coming in the next episode. But I want to focus in here on a key component, I think, of Truman's relationship with Phoebe Also, Truman's relationship with perhaps everyone. This next bit is by Miles Weber from John Hopkins University Press in a piece called An Odd Psychological Type. Miles Weber wrote this subjective paper from research gathered by another terrific resource called Tiny Terror by William Todd Schultz. This is the abstract for this particular paper by Miles Weber, but I thought this was just really, really incredible. In a letter sent from Sicily, dated June 24, 1950, Truman Capote, already the author of a notorious first novel and a collection of highly admired short stories, scolded his high school friend, Phoebe Pierce, for being a poor correspondent. Why are you so silent, he implored. Twelve years later, Capote, by then the celebrated author of seven books, two Broadway plays, and three produced screenplays, instructed his former beau Newton Arvin, quote, There are certain people with whom one can be the closest and longest and most loving friends, and yet they can quite quickly drop out of one's life forever simply because They belong to some odd psychological type, a type that only writes when he is written to, that only telephones when he is telephoned. That is, if one does not write him or phone, one will just never hear from him again. Capote then reported on an experiment he had conducted with Pierce, having decided six years earlier not to contact her unless she contacted him first. She never did. After 16 years of the closest friendship, he complained. So that would be 1962. They lost track six years earlier, 1954 or so. What happens in 54? Lily May Falk, Truman's mother, passes away. Truman also upgrades his swans to the high society six, not the essential swans any longer. Continuing here from Miles Weber, Capote's purpose for sharing the results of his experiment was to berate Newton Arvin for belonging to that same frustrating group of psychological misfits who never initiate contact. Far from becoming a self absorbed celebrity who shed his less famous contacts once he hit pay dirt, Capote remained a loyal friend who resented being given the cold shoulder. His sensitivity to abandonment is central to William Todd Schultz's new psychobiography of the author. Psychobiography is not biography, states Schultz, a professor of psychology at Pacific University. Whereas biography examines the what, where, when, how, and who of a subject's life, he explains psychobiography zeroes in on the why. In particular, Schultz attempts to answer why Capote, as early as 1958, set out to research and write a novel, Answered Prayers, that would skewer the wealthy New York women who had welcomed this elfin homosexual into their social circle. A book that, upon publication, was guaranteed to destroy his close friendships with those women. There is something a little mesmerizing about locating mysteries in people's lives, then fleshing these mysteries out, and finally, shedding what intensity of light one can on them, Schultz writes. As that presumptuous passage might suggest, the author's analysis of Capote's motives can at times become annoying, but for the usual reason, astute psychoanalysis is often annoying, because it is so convincing. Capote, quote, feared closeness, intimacy, and the vulnerability occasioned by seeking out love because these things from his earliest childhood ended in rejection or abandonment, unquote, asserts Schultz before adding quite plausibly, that the novelist kept the poisonous book project in reserve as the ultimate weapon should Gloria Vanderbilt, Babe Paley, Diana Vreeland, or Capote's other swans consider turning him out. But why publish the three extant chapters of a book he would never finish, and at a time when Capote was still on good terms with these women? Schultz cites a Hyperactivating strategy of preventative abandonment. Capote set Cafe Society on fire in order not to get burned. Capote's act of literary arson thereby spared him the pain of rejection. He wasn't abandoned. He wasn't a victim. He was a victimizer. Once his victims retaliated, Capote predictably found himself banished from Cafe Society. Phoebe Pierce does stick around in and out of Truman Capote's life. But by that example, he's not really reaching out to her because of his own little experiment. I don't think that Truman and Phoebe ever regain their closeness of the early days. But we also heard another name in that last paragraph, Diana Vreeland. Holy cats. She's kind of a big deal. Throughout the story, a big deal in New York, a big deal in fashion, Diana Vreeland definitely one of Capote's coterie. Diana Vreeland was the fashion editor of Harper's Bazaar from 1937 to 1962. She'll intersect with all the swans, young and old, who all move in and out of Diana's world long before they move in and out of Truman Capote's world. After her Harper's Bazaar decades are complete, Diana Vreeland will be editor in chief of Vogue. Diana Vreeland was Anna Wintour long before Anna Wintour. No less than Richard Avedon, famous photographer, says about Diana Vreeland, quote, She was and remains the only genius fashion editor. Unquote. And it is the relationship between Diana Vreeland and Richard Avedon that inspires the movie Funny Face, starring Fred Astaire and Audrey Hepburn. And hey, for Truman Capote, Diana Vreeland is a helpful connection to have from the start. It is at Diana Vreeland's home that Truman Capote meets Slim Keith for the first time. Diana Vreeland will also give Lee Radziwill her gig in fashion, too. Diana Vreeland, let's keep an eye on her. I do want to fill in just a general biography of Diana Vreeland. This is her official biography from the New York Public Library Archives and Manuscripts. This is where Diana Vreeland's papers, letters are. It's a wonderful little overview here at a very high level to cover Diana's background. Diana Vreeland, renowned editor-in-chief of Vogue and fashion editor of Harper's Bazaar, was a dominant force in the fashion industry of the mid-20th century. She was born Diana Dalziel in Paris in 1903, the daughter of a British stockbroker, Frederick Young Dalziel, and Emily Key Hoffman, an American. In 1924, she married Thomas Reed Vreeland, a banker and international financier. The Vreeland marriage produced two sons, Thomas Reed Jr. and Frederick Dalziel. Although born into a wealthy and socially prominent family, Vreeland worked for most of her life. From the late 1920s to the mid-1930s, she ran a small lingerie business in London. After the Vreelands returned to the United States, she began writing a freelance column called Why Don't You for Harper's Bazaar? In 1937, Vreeland was hired as the fashion editor and she remained at Harper's Bazaar for 25 years. She resigned in March of 1962, disappointed that she was not asked to succeed Carmel Snow as editor-in-chief. Vreeland's next career move was to Vogue, the leading rival of Harper's Bazaar. In an article in the New York Times announcing Vreeland's appointment as associate editor, Carrie Donovan wrote, Mrs. Vreeland is the most respected editor in the fashion business today. Her appearance at a fashion show is the highest accolade a designer can hope for. Along with the late Carmel Snow, editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar, Mrs. Vreeland is credited with shaping the image of the magazine and, in turn, the looks of thousands of women. At Vogue, she quickly rose to the position of editor-in-chief. She put her own personal stamp on the magazine and continued to make headlines in the fashion and business world. However, her personal style and extravagant spending conflicted with the priorities of the magazine's publisher. She was replaced as editor-in-chief in 1971 retaining the position of consultant. During the final stage in her very long career, Vreeland revived the dormant Costume Institute of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Under her guidance and patronage, the Costume Institute would launch several spectacular exhibits that attracted the social elite and received high-profile publicity. Among her Costume Institute triumphs, were The World of Balenciaga in 1972 and Romantic and Glamorous Hollywood Design in 1974. During the 1980s, Vreeland published two books, Allure co-authored with Christopher Hemphill and her autobiography, D.V. Vreeland died in 1989 in New York City after a long period of illness. Wow, what a dynamic and lush life. We are going to have more about Diana Vreeland in Friday's Not Done Yet episode coming on Patreon. But before we close out this episode today, let's take a little listen into what Diana Vreeland has to comment on about Truman Capote. Again, this is from George Plimpton's Truman Capote And Diana Vreeland is commenting about after the release of answered prayers here. So this is Diana Vreeland. He said, are you going to stick by me, Diana? I said, no, I'm not. If by that you mean believing you're the purest of the pure? No, Truman. I am not taking any sides whatsoever, but I am definitely not on your side. You have offended your friends. And that's something you have no excuse for whatsoever. That was the end of it. But it wasn't the end of it. Whenever we were in public, if he was standing across a room in the Waldorf Hotel, I'd walk over and say, how do you do? This is when no one spoke to him. I always went out of my way to stick with Truman in public, but I never saw him in private. Truman really did. For whatever psychoanalysis you want to do, abandon his swans in full force. Something to that. Something to this whole entire story. There's a lot connected in this one. Truman Capote's early days in New York City in Greenwich. His friend Phoebe Pierce, her influential grandmother, leading us to perhaps even two decades before Truman publishes Answered Prayers. How Truman is bending in a particular and peculiar way. A lot embedded in that particular story. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining me today, investigators, in our Double Dip Capote's Coterie this week. I shall be back with you next Monday, your Dunday, for Truman Capote's continuing story. We're going to pick back up in 1944 when he makes his move for independence. We're going to meet another essential swan, the one who thinks she's most definitely the model for Holly Lightly. If you need more done and done in the meantime, please check out patreon.com slash done and done for early and ad free episodes, bonus episodes too. This week I am not done yet talking about Diana Vreeland and perhaps another lady or two super influential within the fashion universe it really does all connect you are simply the best thank you again for spending your time with me today telling your like-minded friends about done and done for your kind reviews and your emails too sending all the wonderful your way and until we meet again stay curious and keep on investigating Thanks for listening to the Done and Done Podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.dunanddun.com. See you next week, friends.